2: Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Tech with the mind.
3: I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at
1: 20 is you can... Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend, so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How's it going, bro?
4: I'm very good, Bryce. Very excited for this episode. The second this week where we continue our ongoing love affair with <laughs> the Hearts and Minds Conference and the listed investment company that comes out of it.
1: Yeah, I feel like we're building a bit of a long-term relationship here. <laughs> <Yes. so. laughs> hey, well, we
4: are long-term investors, so, <laughs> yeah. so that's good.
1: Yes, we spoke to Hamish from TDM on Monday and very much looking forward to unpacking another one of the stock pitches from the conference. Conference. We do have Rory from Hearts and Minds here with us in the studio again. So, Rory, welcome. Great to be back. Firstly, fun going well? Yeah, it's going well. We're pretty happy
4: right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, Good. I think after the conversation we had with Hamish on Monday, yes. you can see why you're smiling a bit <laughs> <laughs> just a few weeks after the conference. <laughs> so,
1: Rory, we are lucky to have, as I said, another conference manager here today. And we thought we would give you the honor to introduce Chow Ma.
3: Thank you. So, you remember a few days ago we had Hamish, which was one of our returning speakers at at each conference. We try to have a mix of returning speakers who have got some track record at the conference and also some fresh faces. And so, today we've got Chow Ma from Cooper Investors. Cooper Investors are one of our core managers as well. So, Peter Cooper, who founded Cooper Investors, has been involved in the conference since 2016. He's been a conference speaker himself. Some of his portfolio managers speak at the conference. And this time we've got Chow Ma, an Asian equities specialist, very educated. She's an author, has written a book in Chinese, Harvard educated, way smarter than me. (laughs) (laughs) And so without any further
1: ado, I'll go back to you guys. Nice. Well, welcome Chow Ma to the show.
5: Thank you, guys. And and thank you for that, Rory. You're
1: far too kind. So just to give a a little bit more of a background to an already impressive resume that Rory spoke about. Yes, Chow is Asian Equities Fund Portfolio Manager at Cooper Investors, an Australian-based long-only investment manager with over 12 billion assets under management. Prior to starting at Cooper in 2017, Chow spent several years investing in technology and consumer sectors right across Asia and the US. She's worked at Lehman Brothers Couture Management and was head of Asia at Jericho Capital, a multi-billion dollar global investment fund manager in New York. Chow, apologies if I have butchered the pronunciation of both those (laughs) funds. (laughs) But yes, you were a presenter at the 2020 Sewn Hearts and Mind Conference and you pitched Shenzhou International. So let's get stuck in.
4: Let's do it. Now, Chow, we want to talk about your conference pitch and really go deep on the stock. But before we do, we'd love to get to know you a little bit more and hear a bit about your background in finance and investing. And we do like to start these conversations by hearing about people's very first investment we generally find there's a good story or some good lessons that come out of it. So to kick us off today, can you tell us the story of your first investment?
5: Sure. And you guys are spot on. I think the first investment is a It's always a nail biter. This one is no exception. So my very first job with a large U.S. hedge fund called Co2. I joined a fund about a decade ago in New York, and my very first stock pitch was a company called Sina. Back then, Sina operates the one of the largest social network websites in China called Weibo. This is equivalent to sort of think about a, a more feature-rich version of Twitter. And, you know, no one really caught on to the trend when we started buying the stock. And I dedicated about six months of my life doing as deep dive as possible into the product and even figure out, I actually hired a computer programmer and figured out an algorithm that could actually track the daily usage of Weibo, which means we can prove in real time that this service is absolutely going explosive. Wow. So, we bought the stock and built it over time to about 10% of a 5 billion US fund. So, it's a half a billion dollar position at some point. And one day, and you know, we've actually initially made quite a bit of money. And then one day, the company just announced that the Crown Jewel asset, which is Weibo for Sina, delisted the public shareholders who thought, all of us thought we own 100% of this asset. Management just announced out of the blue that you actually only own 85% and just stole 15% from the public shareholders. So the stock fell 20% in one day. And, you know, sort of we were really upset about it because, you know, sort of... First year on the job and you lost 100 million US <laughs> yeah. in a day. That's yeah. just not a good day for anybody. <laughs> I mean, we eventually sort of recover most of the losses and it's a bit of a long story. But I think, you know, this event really left a huge imprint in my own philosophy and way of thinking about investments. I think, you know, when we think about a company, people love talking about products and industry and total addressable market, how fast it could grow but i actually think you know the one element that has not been talked about is really the quality capability and in this case the integrity of management and then from then on, every company that I even think about investing over the past decade, I check management in five different ways, 10 different ways, basically every single way I could possibly think of and go way deeper than, you know, just simply talking about some ex-employees, you know, we'll talk to industry contacts, we talk about you know, the co-founders that used to work with this founder, how their relationship evolved. we really duck to the personal motivation and character of a top decision maker. We talk to the VCs who back a certain management team, you know, five rounds before they even came to the public markets. So that just really becomes something that, that is, you know, absolutely essential for any kind of investment thesis.
4: Wow, what a
1: first investment.
4: (laughs) I think you're the the first guest we've had on the show whose first investment was in the billions.
5: (laughs) It's a bit of a scary number, yeah.
4: So
1: speaking of major lessons, you were at uh, Lehman Brothers in 2007 and 2008 during the GFC. What was that experience like? I imagine it was a pretty crazy one, but also an important one in in your investing journey. What were some of the key lessons that you have taken from that experience?
5: You know, it was a really interesting experience. So I left Lehman Brothers in April 2008. I actually managed to sell all my Lehman stock to pay for tuition for Harvard Business School. So that was a, a fortunate event personally for myself. But I could tell you, from 2016, 17, and 2018, if you were sitting in the office of Lehman Brothers, not a single person around you would believe that the company would ever go under. So in investing, we talk about every industry, every company tend to go through a hubris to humility cycle. And that was That was basically the peak of hubris. I still remember the day that Bear Stearns got bought by J.P. Morgan, and we were all laughing at the Bears people, not even thinking that, you know, Lehman Brothers could actually be the one that go down without being acquired. I reflected on that quite a bit. And that really just spoke to, you know, certain industry after a a, quite a long time of growth, thinking that they're invincible. But really, at the, at the core, every business is, is vulnerable and, and there's really no room for hubris in any part of the organizational psyche. And just to put matters worse, when I was a Lehman Brothers, I was an investment banker in the financial institutions group. So all the banks, insurance companies, brokerage firms were actually my clients. So me and my group, we sit around analyzing the balance sheet, the, the income statement, the financial health of all of our clients on a daily basis and not a single one of us thought of, Hey, how does our own employer look going Mm. through the same lenses? So that just shows you sort of once once hubris creeps into the organizational culture, it is an extremely dangerous place to be.
4: Mm. Yeah. Well, I like that idea of a hubris to humility cycle. I imagine Lehman in 08 was one of the quickest uh, slides down that cycle that we've seen in history.
5: And we were all extremely humble ever since.
4: Yeah. <laughs> <what to> say. <laughs> so Chow, you've done so much in your career. You've been a professional investor in the US. You're now in Australia at Cooper Investors. You've been to Harvard Business School. You've written a book. You've seemed to have uh, ticked a lot off your bucket list. Throughout that journey and throughout your career, have you developed an investing philosophy that you apply to your personal investing?
5: There is no boundary between, or well, there's no difference between my personal and professional investing. All our money, were actually in the fund that I manage. So, you know, we would deeply believe in alignment of uh, incentives of fund managers and our clients. But in terms of investment philosophy, you know, I think, you know, I don't have a, a very profound one. I would say the two things that to me are the, the most important one. And this is particularly relevant for investors sitting in Australia. I basically started my investing in Asia and far corners of Asia and New York and never thinking that being in New York is some kind of handicap. Um, Actually, being anywhere is not an excuse. If we invest in the company, the bar should be that you need to know more about this company, everything about it, than anyone else in the world. There is no sort of excuses or discount given based on geography. And, you know, when we run our teams out in Australia, it's the same bar and same philosophy. It doesn't matter that we are investing in some, you know, rural stock out in India. Our team needs to know more about that stock than, than anyone else. And I really think investors around the world in the digital era today, they really shouldn't be accepting any kind of information disadvantage just because, you know, you're not physically there. And then, of course, you know, once global travel resumes, we we love visiting companies and we go to Asia sort of hundreds of times a day, a year for for that particular reason. And the second one ties back to the first lesson that I talked about is, is really to understand the people companies, you know, at some point, all the professional investors tend to think of companies as a ticker, as a stock, as a vehicle to make money. But at the end of the day, companies don't actually exist. A group of people exist and they have their own personal motivation, personal drive, personal reason to make certain decisions. And this has a financial outcome, which we end up seeing in the in the financial disclosure. So, you know, to really understand the humanity side of business to me is is both a challenge and one of the biggest joy.
1: Something that almost every fund manager we speak mm. to says is the most one of the most important aspects of their research is understanding management, yet it's the hardest thing to find information on as a retail investor. So maybe we can try and do something about that. <laughs> <laughs> Chow, before we move on to Cooper Investors, we'll just take a short break to hear from our sponsors. So Chai, we've just taken a trip down your background and we are going to jump into some stuff about Cooper Investors now. You manage an Asian equities fund and I guess the question is, what is attractive about Asia at the moment? Why invest in Asia?
5: Yeah, so it's been a long-term passion of mine. And, and not just because I grew up in the region and, you know, clearly have a familiarity and an affinity to it. I think when we look at Asia as a region, two things really jumped out at me. One is, you know, when I first investing in Asia, probably, you know, call it 12 years ago, and, and I started off in New York and, you know, in all the funds we worked at, including Cooper investors, we never really lowered the standard for management. So for an Asian company to be eligible to be a portfolio company, the management quality and capability really need to be top of class. And we don't give any, you know, emerging market discounts. So if we invest in a department store in China, the guy that runs that department store better be as good at running it as, you know, the guy who's running Macy's or Target in the U.S. So that's really the bar that I I deeply believe in. And 12 years ago, I couldn't have possibly confidently tell you that I could find, you know, a portfolio of 40 management teams that are every bit as good as the best in class American management teams. And now just across our team, we identified about a hundred teams. So 100 management teams in 100 different companies that we think are every bit as good as the best-in-class Australian and American companies. And that's a really profound change in the quality of management. And there are many, many reasons behind it. This is a new crop of management team. Many of them have been Western-educated, worked at multinational companies before, jumping back into a domestic business. A lot of them are digital native. So they are just, just inherently fantastic at managing the the, the whole digitization process. They tend to be younger, which means they understand the young consumers and so on and so forth. So, you know, I think that the vast improvement of quality of Asian management is still being very underappreciated by the global investors. And, you know, when I go meet with potential investors, the first question I got is always corporate governance is always how do you trust the Asian managers? And, you know, I could look them straight in the eye and say, you know, the portfolio companies that we invest in, I trust them completely. I've followed them for years. These are the personal track records that that these people have have shown us. This is how well aligned they are. And this is really how passionate and capable and highly people with uh, with high integrity. So I think that's the one thing that's been underappreciated. And that really leads to the second point, which is, you know, for the equivalent growth business and also for the equivalent quality of management, you see a lot more bargains in Asia. All these misunderstandings and probably not misconception per se, just sort of an outdated version of what Asian management companies were like, really lead to a pretty deep discount on Asian equities compared to global. So, you know, the portfolio that I'm managing today across 40 of these stocks. So, you know, when we identify that 100 best in class management team that I told you guys about, we picked the 40. Best of the best, and that's our portfolio. And across the portfolio now, they're trading at 25 times PE for an average growth of mid-teens. And then over a the past sort of quite five to ten years, the long-term return on equity of these companies is over fifteen percent. So this is really the, the high-quality company managed by really good people and still trading at a discount. So that's really at this point why you know I'm I'm really excited about you know the portfolio and the quality of Asian companies at this point.
1: A bit more of a a basic question, I guess, but what do you actually define as management team? Is it board and CEO? I mean, generally speaking, I'm I'm sure it changes from company to company, but like how deep do you actually go within the organization? And then if you've got 40 companies to look after, making sure that you're across changes within each management team would be important and what's the process there?
5: Yeah, it's a fantastic question. So management team is really defined by, in my view. Anyone that has the power of making a decision that matters. And of course, on top of management teams, sort of individual assessment, you have the overarching culture, which is a really sort of code of conduct for the whole organization. So, how deep do we go? We go as deep as possible. Usually, uh, for a company to be eligible to be a portfolio company, we would have followed the company about two years. And During these two years, we usually would have at least four touch points, usually one-on-one meetings with the management teams. We rarely join broker conferences, so these meetings are really us traveling to the company headquarters, going through their plants, their factories, go eat at the employee dining hall, and really have a feel of what it's like working in this company. Now, let's think about eight touch points with a company management team before investing in them. You don't get a lot of incremental information if you talk to the same person eight times. So obviously, you know, we usually start with the investor relations person, and then we move on to the finance controller, director, CFO, and then COO, eventually CEO and founder. If we could have access to some of the board members, we do. But, you know, personally, I I found sort of the the executive director slash management team just more interesting to talk to because these are what we call the co-face element of management. So these are the people that's really sort of day in and day out doing the work. Mm. So on average, we hold the stock for longer than five years and we're long only, we don't short. Um, So we come across as very friendly long term investors. For a lot of these Asian companies, we're almost the ideal investor. So we actually found that with patience and persistence, and you know, showing our faces at their headquarters, you, you do get pretty good corporate assets over time.
4: It's a fascinating area of the market, Asian equities. There's so many fast-growing companies, and you know, some that capture a lot of headlines. You know, some of the big Chinese tech stocks like Alibaba, Tencent, and stuff like that. I think most people are familiar with. I'm interested to know, though, from your perspective, Chow, outside of the sort of the big markets of China and Japan, are there any other Asian markets that you think are particularly interesting or exciting at the moment?
5: Yeah. So India is a fantastically interesting one. So we are very dedicated to investing in India. And in a lot of industries in India today, I would say the industry either exhibits sort of similar characteristics of some of the Chinese industries Maybe a few years ago, but in terms of sort of the culture that we're looking for, which is, you know, we love preparatorial culture where founders, CEO work alongside the employees and really maintain that entrepreneurial passion and drive throughout the organization. We could find, you know, sort of very, very impressive Indian companies on that perspective and in also in terms of the industry consolidation which is a actually a very, very interesting thematic that we see across Asia today. India and China are very similar. So, you know, the, the ultimate reason for this is when you find a really great management team in Australia, this management team's competitor tend to be, you know, rather professionally run, probably still fairly capable company, just probably not as passionate and as capable as, as company A. But if you find a company of equal quality in China or India its competitor tend to be either a state owned employee which is basically run by politicians who care very little about commercial interest or some very very small mom and pop business that really lacks the scale of investing in infrastructure investing in IT and you know most likely appointed three aunties and two uncles to serve at the important business functions instead of finding the capable professional managers so when you're thinking about you know, this kind of quality of management team competing against much weaker companies, you know, we, we have this analogy, I call it, you know, it's like slicing hot knife through butter. And, you know, the prospect of this particular company consolidating the market and taking market share is just so much higher. So I would say both China and India today exhibit very strong characteristics of this, sort of the best in class companies taking market share almost across every industry we look at.
1: Oh wow. So let's move to Sewn Hearts and Minds. Uh, you were a conference fund manager pitching this year, and uh, we loved watching the pitch along with all of the other fund managers. So, thank you, I guess, from the Equity Mates community for giving you time to do so. It was a great insight, I guess, for a lot of our community. So, hopefully, we see you back next year. Thank you. Before we get into Shenzhou International, why did you decide to participate in, in the conference? What is it about the Hearts and Minds that is appealing?
5: Well, so uh, even when I was in New York, I would go to the song conference in New York on the Lincoln Center every year. And I always remember saying to myself how fantastic it was as an experience, because it's about fund managers giving back, but it's, it's giving back more than dollars and cents. It's giving back with the best thing that we do, which is stock picking. So I thought that was just such a great way of charity. And frankly, you know, all the fund managers presenting the song conference in New York could probably write a check for a few million dollars. But I would say their time and their participation and their enthusiasm pitching the stock, you know, that's sort of near and dear to their hearts, probably give more to the industry and to the calls than just writing a check. So, you know, I think Song Hearts and Minds very much sort of has that same philosophy. And then, of course, on top of that, you know, mental health is actually one of the key area of investing donation for Soul Hearts and Minds and throughout the whole organisation of of Cooper Investors, mental health is another issue that's just very near and dear to our hearts and it's something that we we all feel really passionate about. So clearly we also support the the clause.
1: Mm. Rory, that's what you said when we interviewed you, that they're giving away essentially their IP, which is pretty phenomenal. So yeah, I guess, as I said, big thank you from all of the equity mates community.
4: So Chow, I think we've kept everyone in suspense long enough. <laughs> um, I think uh, it's time to get to the stock you pitched, Shen Zhao. I hope I'm pronouncing yeah. that right. Yeah. So maybe for people that didn't see the stock pitch at the conference, maybe if we start with the basics, can you tell us a little bit about the company, what it does and what your investing thesis was?
5: Sure. Senjo is, you know, one of my favorite stocks. That's why I pitch it, but it's also just a phenomenal human story. So, you know, just a bit of a background. Senjo trades out of the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. The ticker is 2313 HK and is the world's largest manufacturing for sportswear. So think about the workout t-shirts that we all wear from Nike and Adidas. Most likely they are made by Senjo. And, you know, the start of Sanzhou was phenomenal. You know, about 30 years ago, back in the 1970s in China, in a small town near Shanghai, a little local boy just decided he didn't want to go to school anymore. And his mother, almost as a form of punishment, sent him to a local textile factory. And she figured, you know, the pretty grueling conditions at the textile factory would just drive this little boy back to school in no time. But instead he found his lifetime passion, which is textile. And everyone knows that this is a really challenging industry. The, the famous Berkshire Hathaway used to be a textile business that Warren Buffett couldn't turn around. So this is known for being you know, almost a, a almost a graveyard for both investing and and, and companies. But you know, Senjou actually has been a huge success over the past two decades. And the little boy that used to work at a textile factory was the founder and still is the CEO. And he, ho- he owns a very big chunk of the company himself. So when we look sort of under the hood on a very, very challenging industry that people keep saying is commoditized. Automation is going to come and, you know, take away all these factories business. And then, of course, you have trade war. So Senzhou, 70% of the production is based out in China, but most of the sales actually goes out of China. So trade war is another natural issue for the company. Why would you be interested in investing with Senzhou? But, you know, when you look under the hood and that's really sort of why we got so excited about Senjo is one, someone has to make that shirt for Nike and Adidas. And Senjo was just better at it in every single element. It's better with quality control. It is better with automation. So I actually think someone will come up with that clever machine um, that automate the whole process of textile automation. And I think that company is going to be in central. It's invested way ahead of all its peers in terms of IT technology, in terms of computer and automated modules. And the most impressive thing about their IT is it didn't exist in the lab. It worked closely with its biggest customers, which is Nike, Adidas, Uniqlo, and Puma. So Sanjo's technology is backwards integrated back to, you know, how Nike think about designing and making their own fabric. So these are really battle-tested, proven technology um, that Sanjo is, you know, again, miles ahead of its competitors. And, you know, looking forward, why am I so excited about Sanjo? Well, two things. One is because of quality control and automation, Sanjo is gonna keep taking share from other smaller manufacturing companies. And right now, it's only got about 30% wallet share, and we think that has the potential of going up to way over 50 over time. And then the second one is, you know, I talked about Sanjo 70% of it being based out in China. Well, the other 30. Senjou actually started setting up about five years ago of various production bases out in Vietnam and Cambodia. So no one else in the world right now has a viable production base in three different countries. And the advantage of that is it depends on what the most favorable either tax or political policies are in the end market. Central can freely choose where to ship the products from. So if Sino-U.S. relations become very tense, well, Sanjo can ship from Cambodia to the U.S. If Cambodia um, and Europe, you know, having some kind of trade spat, well, then Sanjo can choose to ship from Vietnam to Europe. So this kind of flexibility you really don't get from any other manufacturer. And then, of course, during COVID-19, when the borders all closed, single-country manufacturers really struggle. Um, and Senjo having this flexibility actually stepped up and took quite a bit of market share. So when you put everything together, you have a best in class, very passionate founder who is still working day and night sweating at the factory. I still remember a week after COVID-19 hit China, and that's in the middle of the Chinese New Year week, I was actually on the phone with Mr. Ma and ask him, you know, how things are going. And he said, I just got on the phone with my Vietnam operation. This is what's happening to Vietnam. I stayed up all night talking to my Cambodia people and this is what's happening in Cambodia. I mean, this kind of the the passion and dedication from a founder is just so rare. And, you know, in terms of, you know, the last element of it, which is worker relationship. I mean, way before, you know, sort of corporate social responsibility became a popular concept. Sanjou was taking care of his workers way better than everybody else. So it's the only company that we know that has the best in class employee dining hall. I love going to Sanjo's factories and eating there. It's always my favorite meal um, of the whole trip. And, and But that really speaks to sort of the deliciousness and, and nutritiousness of, um, of his food all at a very, very subsidized price for its workers. You get to see the working condition being very good, very clean, all air conditioned. And then, you know, some of the smaller gestures is, you know, every year at Chinese New Year, Xinjiang would actually send buses to send the workers back to their hometown because that's the once a year opportunity they can see their families back in the villages. So all these small things really add up to strong labor relationship, the lowest labor turnover and, you know, you know, across three countries, Senjo has always been the leader of uh, worker relationship and never really had a dispute. So when you add it all up, you know, this is just, I would say, a pretty awesome company and still trading at roughly about 30 times PE for a solid mid-teens growth in the next five to seven years.
4: Yeah, wow. It, it sounds like an incredible company and we're excited to ask you some questions and delve a little bit deeper into some of those things you just talked about. Before we do, if you think back to when you first came across this stock, how did you first find it? I think that's a common thought in the equity mates community, you know, there's all these great companies out there, but how do you go about actually discovering them and then filtering through them all and, you know, finding which ones you're going to really go deep on and research more and visit and all of that?
5: So every investor only has 24 hours a day. So I'm a big believer of concentrated effort into, you know, both the trends, the industry, and the companies you believe in. So sportswear is one of those industries that across the team would dedicate a huge amount of time studying. And, you know, really every evidence that we could see is showing that sportswear is a very long-term secular trend, probably got even accelerated after COVID. You know, I bet you lots of ladies are going to drop their heels and showed up at work in 2021 in their sneakers. So, you know, that's one thing that we have observed. So we own some of these sportswear brands in the portfolio. Then we start asking the question so the up and down the supply chain, what else can, you know, what else can we invest in? Who else can we talk to? And, you know, the, the, the value of doing so is, you know, and a lot of times you, you do find a few investable companies, but even if you don't, you also have a deeper understanding of the companies you're investing because you have to understand the supply chain, you know, sort of in, the, in a holistic sense to really understand one part of it. So we started actually looking at the retailing operation. So a lot of these brands, they actually just wholesale their products to another retail operator that actually operate their brands. So we start talking to the retailers and then we also look up the supply chain and start looking at guys like Senjo They actually put together the fabric. And we actually even look further on, 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 say, you know, sort of the pure place, looking at dyeing the fabrics, for example. So that's really sort of part of the journey. And um, we came across Senjo and I still remember sort of maybe the, the first time thinking or visiting Senjo, I was quite skeptical. And it just shows the value of of visiting a company and suspending sort of a lot of your skepticism and, and truly understand how the business works. Because I look at the financials, I know there's something in this company. You don't have this kind of, you know, return on equity. You don't have this kind of growth on a very sustainable business over a decade without some secret sauce. And I was determined to find out what the secret sauce was. And once you see the culture of Sanjo, once you see the passion and dedication to this industry, it became everything you saw when you visit them. It's just impossible not to see it. So I still remember that, that aha moment with Senjo and and that really sort of drove the long term conviction, because I think that's the moment where you actually connect with what the company is all about.
1: So Chow. given that the idea of the conference is that the stocks will go in the portfolio for 12 months, Rory will do his thing and then likely sell them all at the end and we go again, unless it does go into the core. But your view of this stock and I guess your philosophy more generally is that sort of five to 10 year time horizon Is there anything about this pitch that you think is going to be delivering particular upside in price over the next 12 months? Are there catalysts that you're looking at that will sort of deliver a stronger result over the next 12 months compared to the longer term?
5: I think that's a really sharp observation. And when we think about investing, we firmly think about investing horizon quite a bit longer than 12 months. So, you know, this is this is not sort of us pounding the table and say this is a one-year double stock. Mm. But I think in the near term, there are quite a number of trends that meet quite positive. I think one of the reasons is to see how much smaller um, manufacturing companies are still scattering, even in, you know, half the world has opened up at this point post-pandemic. You still see them quite having a hard time and, and lots of challenges recovering and Senjo is already fully charging ahead, you know, everything in Senjo is back to a growth trajectory. So that's, you know, definitely positive to, to observe for the near term. And secondly is, you know, I think the relationship that Senjo has with its customers today, even comparing to about 18 months ago, was a, quite a different relationship. I think their performance and absolutely outstanding delivery. So, you know, over the the COVID-19 period, Central actually delivered to its customers faster than what they did in 2019. And this kind of flexibility is exactly what Nike and Adidas needed when they didn't know what the end demand is going to be. So when your consumer demand is being volatile, you appreciate the short lead time from your manufacturing partners just so much more. So I could just see a very, very different relationship that is going to benefit both near, mid, um, near medium and long term.
4: So, Chow, on that point around their customers, one thing that you noted in your pitch was that they have quite a concentrated customer base yep. between Nike, Adidas, Uniqlo, and was it Puma the fourth? Yep. Yeah, yep. That they represent, was it something like over 80% of the Correct. The, yep. uh, the customer base? You know, generally a concentrated customer base presents a risk for a company because if one of those companies decides to go elsewhere, then that's a big percentage of their customers walking out the door. How do you think about such a concentrated customer base for this company?
5: I think that's complete. you're completely right. It's contrary to conventional thesis, but we love it. I think this kind of concentration on customer precisely showed the focus of Sanjo. It's because it focuses on its customer to such an extent. That's really why Sanjo's quality control is so much higher than everyone else, because it's been holding the bar of Nike and Adidas quality control firmly since the 1980s. Um, that's also why it's leading the industry on IT and on automation, because again, it's it's aiming to serve the best in class companies in the industry and serve them better than everyone else. So I actually think that it is. But this is precisely why Senjo has been so successful. I think if they had really diluted their brands and diluted their focus away and started serving lots of smaller brands, they might just lose that edge. And then, you know, additional benefit of serving these four customers is these are household names. These are really leaders of the industry. So the good work that Senjo is doing for Nike and Adidas and Uniqlo did not go unnoticed. So almost every sportswear maker brand that we speak to know who Senjo is. And if you ask them, why are you not a, a big client of Senjo? The answer is always because they wouldn't take us. So there's a line out of the door. And then I would say some of these Chinese brands like Anta and Lining or some of these up and coming brands like Lululemon and Under Armour, if Senzhou would agree to really take them on as a major customer, they will sign up sort of in a heartbeat. <laughs> uh, so, so, you know, San real bottleneck of growth is actually not demand. The real bottleneck growth is to really keep constructing these manufacturing bases in the three countries that it's currently in and keep building the factories, keep building the lines, getting the machines in and recruiting the labor.
4: That's a good answer and a good, a good distinction for us to pay attention to. It's not a concentration of customers because that's all the customers they can get. It's a concentration of customers by choice, <laughs> and there's a line of people waiting to take their place. So Chao, we're just going to pause here and hear from our sponsors. So Chao, you've told us a little bit about this company, Shenjiao, what it does, some of its major customers. One thing that I wrote down when I was listening to your pitch was around the automation. In your pitch, you said something along the lines of, you were confident that automation would come to the manufacturing sector and you yeah. were confident that Shenzhou would be at the forefront of it. Yeah. Where does that confidence come from? And I guess, how do you test that hypothesis?
5: You know, I think automation within each industry comes up in a different form. And the automation is rarely... Sort of, you know, we think it's a snap of a finger and everything changed from, you know, human power, human managed to a machine managed process. Automation actually tend to happen in the incremental step by step change. So over the past decade, investing in San Joe, we have already seen the loss of these very delicate jobs of cutting fabric that used to only be performed by a very skillful, most likely a female worker, because their hands are smaller, more dexterous. believe it or not, now are actually being replaced by computer modules. And if you think about a computer module, it's expensive, and to first investing that clearly takes a lot of initial investment. So what kind of company would actually take the time and has the capital of investing that module? Well, is it's the largest company to start with because you can amortize that cost of that module over a much larger scale fabric. It's also a company with vision, a company that work with the client that require this kind of sophisticated cutting and sophisticated skill. So this is all awesome, of Joe. And that's really why, you know, when you think about one of the trends of sportswear, it's a sportswear is actually becoming a lot more technical. So we used to all wear probably the same gym shirt to the gym to go play tennis and go hiking. Now, every single sport actually have a very niche design of shirts and pants and different accessories that's that's tailored for the needs of that sport. So as sportswear become a lot more technical, these kind of very delicate changes of fabric and innovation on the fabric also become forefront. And that's really where Sanjo has invested. And we, we could see it. Every trip we go there, we get to see sort of the modules getting more and more sophisticated, more and more granular. And we get to see sort of the machines getting smarter. What's amazing about Sanjo is they have really spent all this time training the workers to, to do a lot of manual work. But as machines come into the factory, what they end up doing is retraining these workers, upskilling them so that they become the manager of machines instead of just being laid off. So that really shows sort of another cultural element of, of compassion of the company towards the workers themselves. But, you know, seeing with our own eyes, sort of no other company, you can't really be just sitting in the Silicon Valley in a startup office and somehow dream up these different machines. They have very, very specific deep industry expertise behind designing these machines and these computerized modules. And then this evolved over time. So that's really what gives us the confidence that St. Joe is going to be really incremental innovator. And eventually at some point, you know, when the, when the factories become more than automated, for example,
1: Shenzhou is going to be the first one to get there. Mm. So, Chao, to close out the conversation around Shenzhou, obviously, we're going through a pretty intense period at the moment of US-China trade tensions. We're just wondering how you think about this sort of macro trend when analyzing the company and, and how does it play into your probability of success or, I guess, failure?
5: Yeah, it's a great question. And then, you know, I have uh, another contrarian answer for you. (laughs) It's a hoax. (laughs) I think if you find the right management teams, macro just doesn't matter at all. And this is the reason is as investors, we're not management of a company. We're not making the day-to-day decisions on how to execute a strategy, how to make things happen. And it's absolutely impossible to sit in the position of investor and somehow predict what's going to happen to the industry, to the political environment, whatever happened between the currency and ultimately the change in consumer preferences. It's just impossible. We don't have a crystal ball. What we can do, and we can do it reasonably well, is to find the guy that we think is the best in class at doing all those things. And this is the management team that we end up backing. So whatever US trade war analysis that I could possibly come up with, I've always found consistently, by the time I get to that management person or to that CEO and say, hey, I think these are the five things that matter. He'll give you a complete list of 20 things that go down to the most granular basis. What are the exact regulations? What's the fine print that may or may not impact his business? And he's already thought of a strategy of how to deal with the situation. So he's five steps ahead, and that's really why he's so good at it. So if you think about Stenjoe, which is a great example you know, when it first started setting up factories in Vietnam and Cambodia, there was a lot of pushback from even Senjo's own investors to say, why are you doing that? China has plenty of labor, plenty of land. You have a proven track record training and recruiting Chinese workers, which you did not have in these foreign countries. And, you know, trade war was not even close in anybody's horizon. We're still just calculating the dollars and cents. But he's actually stayed up worried about the political situation, saying what's going to happen to me if I only have a single country manufacturing base and what would happen if certain things happen in the world and geopolitics. So now looking back, having 30% of your production coming from Vietnam and Cambodia is an absolute luxury. And that's only because he had the vision way before the investor communities ever did. And over and over again, I have found that the best management team navigate through a lot of these seemingly insurmountable macro or industry or regulation changes way better than what we expected them to, but more importantly, way better than their competitors so as a result when all the things sort of you know the dust settled they actually come out with a much stronger market share and end up consolidating the industry way faster than what they originally do so they're also very good at turning a challenge into an opportunity so every time you know my own investors or myself read about some really scary industry news the reason that we get to sleep really well at night is to know that we're backing a team or we're backing a guy that I think is the best in the world to handle this particular situation. If there's someone that's going to figure it out, it's this guy. So it's the confidence in, again, the humans that end up making the decisions that that could make you know, that could change the outcome that really give me that
4: confidence. I love that line of thinking, and as you were saying it, it made a lot of sense and. Maybe I'll sleep easier at night, trusting <laughs> some of the, the management team of the stocks that I own now. But Rory, you've been uh, sitting there waiting patiently. So I want to turn back to you quickly. You got this stock pitch and you know it's a Chinese company based in Hong Kong amongst a sea of Australian companies, a few US companies. From your perspective, managing the portfolio for the year, do you have to approach you know these different markets in a different way or is there any different risk management approach you take? with an Australian stock compared to a Chinese stock or is it all just one and the same for you? Well, first of all, I'd just like to say I told you so about how smart we have
3: one of our managers right here. This is incredible, right? It's been a lesson for me as well. Um, in, in terms of the risk management of the portfolio, my direct line is to our fund managers like Chow and hopefully after the last 45 minutes of listening to Chow speaking, you guys and your listeners have got a whole lot more confidence in the stock pitches. Mm. So in terms of risk management, the only real difference is different markets are open different times of the day. And so I may get calls at different times of the day or night. But outside of that, if I've got a good relationship with the fund managers, then it's it's pretty much the same thing all the way around nice. the clock. Yeah.
4: Yeah. I imagine the uh, few days after the conference pitches, you probably had a few sleepless nights trying to execute all those trades around the world. Yeah, it was was fun times. Um,
3: I think I worked out that there were 22 hours of the 24 hours in a day where one of the
4: five markets that I was trying to buy stocks in wasn't open. (laughs) (laughs) Nice one. Chow, we want to thank you for taking the time today and explaining your stock pitch. And Rory, we want to thank you for coming in and joining us again. We've loved this access we've had to some of the managers or some of the people that have pitched for this portfolio. It's been incredible to speak to some of these people and Chow, to hear you talk about your stock. So first of all, we want to say a massive thank you to both of you. Chow, if people want to follow you online, hear more about Cooper Investors, is there anywhere they should go online or any particular social media uh, that yourself or Cooper are active on?
5: I think we have a LinkedIn channel and then, you know, our website is a pretty good place to
4: start. dot no.au. So go check that out and you can see all their funds and their performance. Now, Chow, we do like to end these interviews with a final three questions. So we'll get stuck into those. The first one is, do you have any books that you consider must read? Is it's
5: is a good question. I don't actually think, you know, probably just The Intelligent Investor, which is not a surprising answer and anything by Peter Lynch. But I've actually found, you know, the investing community to be a very prolific one. So almost every hedge fund or long-term fund manager that you read about has written a book. So I personally really, really just love sort of reading everything I could get my hands on on investing. Anything even from some of the traders that end up setting up their own firms or some of the autobiographies, I've, I've found all the books pretty fascinating.
4: Nice one. The second question we like to ask is What is your go to source for investing and financial information?
5: You know, I'm really old school. I just start with the annual report. And then I think Google and YouTube is actually a fantastic source. I mean, it sounds silly, but some of the management teams and especially founders of the businesses, I've actually dug up some of the video interviews they did with some local media, maybe 20 years ago, and that actually show more insights on, you know, who they are as a person, especially when it first started off their journey than, you know, any of the public speeches they do today. So, uh, you know, I, I would really encourage everybody to use all the digital tools. And then, you know, just anything that's publicly available on these video sites. has been pretty great.
4: Final question. If you think back to your younger self, you know, when you were just starting out investing, when you were putting on that multi-billion dollar trade as as your first (laughs) investment. If you think back to your younger self, what advice would you give to your younger self?
5: I would have told my younger self to sell your silly Chinese stock and buy Amazon and Tesla. (laughs) um, What were you thinking? Um, All kidding aside, I think it's just really to to reach out to people. You know, I think as investors, we all love reading, um, but I've found learning from people just as, as helpful. Everybody is actually quite friendly in the industry. So just reach out to anybody in the industry that you either look up to or you think you can learn from and then just cold call or email. And I've I've found that sort of just random learning from people, pretty amazing tool just to learn about things.
1: Nice. Just before we get into the thank yous, Chow, a reminder to our equity mates community that if you love listening to Chow today and hearing about her stock pitch, as well as Hamish and Griffin, you are able to access all of their stock pitches via the HM1 listed investment company, which is obviously listed on the ASX and through One Easy Trade, you can get the access to all of the amazing stocks. The ticker is HM1, so go and check that out if you don't want to be going and buying the individual stocks that were pitched. It's a—it's an awesome vehicle to be able to get access to these incredible fund managers, as we've just heard today. So go and check that out. Both uh, Ren and I are very much involved with that. So it's, uh, yeah, loving it. But ciao. Thank you so much for your time not only today but also, you know, putting it in with the with the conference as I said. We certainly loved your pitch. We got a lot out of it as I know a lot of our equity mates community did as well, and we got even more out of this uh, discussion this afternoon. So it was phenomenal to hear from you and, you know, again, thank you very much.
5: Pleasure is on my. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to
0: Equity Mates Investing Podcast, a production of Equity Mates Media. Please remember that everything you hear in Equity Mates Investing Podcast is general advice only. The content has been prepared without knowing your personal objectives, specific financial circumstances, or goals. The host of EquityMates Investing Podcast may maintain positions in the companies discussed. Before considering any investment, please read the product disclosure statement and consider speaking to a licensed financial professional.